Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 459. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 459 you're listening to. My guest today is mastering engineer, producer, and young priestess, Annie Abigail Casella. And in addition to being mastering engineer and producer, also does circuit development with Paul Reed Smith. And we're going to talk a little bit about that, as well as Annie's journey through the world of audio. Annie Casella coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about analogies. You've heard me time and time again do the kitchen analogy thing with audio. And in this interview, you're going to hear that again, but you're also going to hear Annie bring up photography or cameras Uh, camera lenses in particular, I believe it is. And it got me really thinking how that is such a perfect analogy for the world of audio. Think about how audio is presented and then think about how, how photographs are presented. You know, is the picture in focus? Is it out of focus? Is it grainy? Uh, You know, is there great depth of field uh, or, you know, or coloration that uh, is unique or or accentuates you know what is happening in the photo we are like photographers in so many ways and the camera uh, serves in this analogy as uh, could be any one of the pieces of gear that we use but ultimately the photograph the the final result is the music is the sound effect is the soundtrack it is whatever you know form of audio you practice if you have a spare minute and you care to take the time and i'm kind of an amateur photographer myself so i love this this exercise here's my ask of you do a little bit of studying of photography you know it doesn't have to be anything big but look at the different aspects of photography and ask yourself how does this compare to the world of audio and it might help you visualize what we do a little more clearly because you know we use our ears right but if you can take what you see in a photo and translate it into audio i just think that that is the ultimate teacher right there and i know it's a little strange but check it out find your favorite book of photography uh, look through it look at the pictures and how they make you feel how they make you react and then try to translate that into, well, how would I do that in audio? What, what plug-in or what technique of recording will give me a similar result? Could be a whole new adventure in, in recording for you, or it could just give you a simple appreciation for photography. Who knows? Anyways, embrace the analogy. That's my rant. Thanks for listening.
Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and in a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Annie Casella here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Annie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. Great to have you here. You're talking to us from Massachusetts? Yeah, I'm just outside Northampton, which is sort of Western Massachusetts, Pioneer Valley, Nipmuc area. Where did you grow up? I grew up just far enough from New York City for it to be inconvenient to spend all my time there, which is exactly what I did. Oh, and where where is that? Mayapack, New York or Putnam County. Okay. Which is next to Westchester County and like White Plains and Croton on Hudson and stuff. Okay. Yeah. You could tell I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, no. And, and why would you? The the saying around town was that it was built by the firemen with a six pack on the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about your upbringing. Brothers, sisters, music in the family, public school, music education, any of that? 
Music in the family, for sure. When I was little, both my parents were engineers. My dad's no longer with us. He was a tech, too, and colorful character, a lot to parse there. And my mom no longer works in music, though we still make records together. And my uncle actually still has a studio in Brooklyn and my cousin's on the road doing the pop star thing. Good for her. Yeah, music in the family, but not in a, not in a nepotism way. It just happens that it like runs in the blood type thing. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I grew up in a recording studio. That is totally rare, <laughs> at least in my travels and my interviews. Wow. Okay, well, tell me about where obviously music and audio, audio is a part of your life yeah. uh, to some degree here. So tell me where music really and or audio kind of got a hold of you and you thought, okay, I know what I'm going to do. Well, I don't know what I'm going to do. You see, that's the thing. I am music. Mm. I think we all are. I think there's plenty of ways to understand the, the universe as a symphony and everyone from, from Tesla to Russell to Einstein was on about this. But it's like, for me, I think it was Jocko that said bass was just like the crayon that he happened to pick up. And so for me... I can't help but make music. I can't help but make my own music. And working in studios has always been really interesting for me because it always feels like the facilitation of transformative process. Like as an engineer, as a producer, even when I'm mastering, because a lot of my work work is mastering and then like I, I produce here and there. And even with mastering, I think of it like being a doula for art. This idea, this vision is being born and I'm just here to help facilitate that. And so when I think about what my role as an engineer or producer is, the technical stuff. And I mean, I'm sitting in a, I'm sitting in my studio that's filled with custom built equipment. Like it's not, it's not to say the technical stuff doesn't matter, but it almost feels just more like tangential to it that really what we're facilitating is the space to be safe in exploration of ourselves and the expression of that. And so I think over the years, that's really what I've kept coming back to around purpose with it is helping people to be in that sort of vulnerability. And then whenever we engage with that, especially with another person, it ends up being a transformative process. I like I like that that analogy of the doula. You know, I always talk about the kitchen analogies, but the birthing is also very spot on in my, my mind. When you say the kitchen analogies, what comes to your mind? Uh, you know, I always think about it when it's like, prepping ingredients for some reason like as i as i'm telling you this i'm thinking of soup and it's just like okay what kind of soup are we going to make hmm. you know and we have all the ingredients and some of the ingredients we bought some of them we grew and we put them all together in the soup it's also i think just in meal preparation that i think of it oh, that's interesting cuz i think i think my favorites are the ones where we don't know what kind of soup we're going to make we only barely know we're making a soup at all oh yeah well and and being like a piss poor chef myself and I'm not going to even use the term chef because that would that would be an insult to chefs. I'm always improvising in the kitchen. It's like, well, I think this could exactly. work. Let's see let's see how this plays out. Mm -hmm. Well, so in the spirit of of staying chronological and just trying to chart the path, tell me of your audio experiences, those who influenced you that made the decision to play a part in it. Yeah. My dad in the later years of his life worked for an audio company called Sound Associates based out of New York that does a lot of rentals and sound design for Broadway and off-Broadway. And when I graduated high school, he's like, hey, you have to get a job. And he got me a job painting the floors there, literally painting the floors. And I worked there for some years by the end of which I was like building up modular console systems and teching them and what have you. And along the way, had mixed a few off-Broadway shows and was like mixing live bands outdoors and whatnot, doing a little recording on the side. But I've been I've been recording in various forms since I was like nine, you know, onto like cassette decks. Yeah. I had bands all through high school. 
yeah, so I was I was working at Sound Associates for a while, and then I quit or got fired a few times. I'm really not sure, but we couldn't work together anymore. And I had gone to community college a little bit and like taken a recording class there, which was neat, but like the professor was really wonderful. But that was always sort of my story with schools is that I really connect with my professors being in school. I sort of, a lot of places, I sort of feel like I'm from another planet. And, you know, I can chalk that up to being autistic or quirky or whatever. But I went to community college for a minute and then that really wasn't it. And then I was just like working and gigging with my band. The thing at Sound Associates ended and I like thought I could be a bartender for a minute and just gig and that didn't really work. And then I like went back to school for a little while at SUNY Purchase. I was in the Conservatory of Music there for a minute. My transcripts say I was studying studio production, but I told everyone I was studying art and consciousness and the interrelatedness of the two through music. And that was cool for a while, but then my dad got really sick and I just couldn't handle school. And Mm. so I dropped out. But I had really connected there with my professors, Peter Denenberg and Silas Brown. Peter used to have Acme recording in Mamaroneck, New York. And like, I think it was the Spin Doctors record that put Acme on the map. Peter's an amazing engineer mm. and producer, but it, I think it was Pocket Full of Kryptonite that put Acme on the map in the 90s. But so Peter was my advisor there and Silas was one of my professors. Silas, also an incredible engineer, does a lot of classical work, has a business called Legacy Recording. I stayed connected with them after dropping out of school and they ended up introducing me to a man named Mark Canise who runs Ambient Recording in Connecticut, who was my mentor for many years. Mm-hmm. And Ambient in the 90s was sort of like the power station was doing like the pop and the rock records and Ambient was doing the big band and jazz and like Sony DMP Telarc recordings. And so working with Mark was really wild because, well, first off, the studio hadn't been running for a while. So we basically put it back together and completely teched it and rewired it. So I I learned a lot about building and working on equipment, working with Mark. But then we do these sessions, you know, where he basically put musicians in a room with no headphones and say, great, just play. Mm -hmm. And so it was it was always about what really feels sacred to me in the performance of music in a group of the connection of the people and, and the magic that happens when we create these spaces to be in that presently. So at some point, just doing my own thing sort of took over from doing things with other people. And of course, there were other like AV gigs and live sound gigs and whatnot along the way to get me here. And here I am. It's funny, though, to try to put it in chronological order because it just feels like I followed a path of breadcrumbs. It feels like something that happened rather than something I did, even though that's really not giving myself enough credit. I'm curious if just speaking truly of, of techniques, whether it be production or recording techniques, from these people like Peter and Silas. Did you learn audio techniques from your parents at all? Not really from my dad. We couldn't really work together. Okay. But I mean, my mom and I still make records together, but she was sort of out of the audio business before I got into it. It's funny because back in the day, she like sold her Avalon EQ. Like she's like, this is just going to be a doorstop because nobody actually knew I was going to end up doing this. You know, now I'm like, mom, the Avalon EQ. But what are you going to do? It's gear. It comes and goes. But... No, I, I learned a lot from Mark, but there's a lot of it that I just had to like do myself because honestly, I was too stubborn to take direction, which I think in some ways helped me shape myself into who and what I am now. And in other ways, probably really held me up. <laughs> Where I was going with that was essentially like, did you see or learn techniques from your parents that differed greatly from Silas and Peter? Oh, that's that's interesting. School was such just a container for me, like when I was actually working with Silas and Peter in school, because we stayed friends after that. And Peter ended up introducing me to his son, Elliot Moss, who I've I've done 
various projects with some recording stuff, but also built him a lot of gear. And then later, Paul Smith, who is a deep co-conspirator of mine when it comes to like designing and building things. But I think a lot of a lot of recording techniques I've picked up just for me, my favorite recordings sound holographic. They sound three-dimensional. They feel like there's all this depth, all this front to back. It's like almost like you're inside the audio. Like in 2015, Sound and Color, the Alabama Shakes record came out and that kind of rocked my world. It was like the first time I felt like I was inside a kick drum and it really changed my perception of what dimensionality could be in audio because I'm, I'm also, I'm such a Muscle Shoals freak and old Motown and stacks too, but particularly the like early fame Muscle Shoals stuff like just has a really special place in my heart. And so for years I was really like going after that, but then there came a turning point almost 10 years ago now where all of a sudden I was chasing this ethereal three-dimensionality and tactile nature of the actual like I'm synesthetic, but not with color. I like perceive sound as shape. And mm -hmm. so it's like all of these like vivid, deep, wide shapes that I started chasing this thing that I'd heard it a couple times because it wasn't like, oh, I want to sound like that band. It was like I had experienced this dimensionality a couple times and been like, that's what I want. And so a lot of my own development of technique has been, I mean, I guess chasing a vision, really. Are there tools that you choose, and I, I won't go down a gear rabbit hole here, but are there tools I mean, that, you can you, if you want. that you choose that that you feel help you achieve those desired results more than others? Yes. But the funny thing is, is that when I was younger, and even at that point 10 years ago, you know, I thought it was like all about finding the magic thing that had just the right transformers that was going to add just the right harmonics or whatnot. And what I found I've come back to time and time again, for me, the thing that really matters is really, really, really good time domain. So not having the actual harmonics, like say you did an FFT of something, right? And you're looking at all the harmonics of something, making sure those stay aligned in time. So I'm not even talking about phase like the overhead and the snare mic lined up. I'm talking about are the harmonics in the decay of the snare drum staying in time relative to one another? Mm -hmm. And it's it's a funny thing because you actually can't measure for it. And I'm sure someone's you know, going to comment and say, well, if you can hear it, you can measure it. And that's just not true. Our ears have evolved for millions of years to be phase detectors. And our test equipment is like a little over 100 years in concept. Like, Because right. I, I actually got down this rabbit hole at one point with Paul and we were like, well, how would we measure this? And we realized that you'd have to be able to do an FFT to look at the intermodulation distortion in time, but with complex program. And by being complex program, you can't do that in three dimensions. It's just not possible. You can only hear it. But it's like when I build equipment, it's really important to me that the frequency response goes way, way, way beyond human hearing in both directions. Mm -hmm. And it's not so I can record a dog whistle. It's so any artifacts of filtering are happening way up. Yeah, happening way up or way down, right? Because say you have a single pole high pass at 18, that's still touching 180 in time. It's still smearing the time up to 180 because it extends a decade above. Mm -hmm. So if you really want to have 20 hertz be flat and in time, your equipment can't roll off above two hertz. And sometimes I go lower than that because if I'm mastering a record, you can really hear what that does. And it's not necessarily like, oh, you don't have the bass. It's that things start to smear. And when they smear, they start getting smaller or they get wacky and resonant. And so we start cutting things with an EQ to try to fix the wacky resonances. Mm -hmm. And then when we're EQing, right, any filter adds time. So we're adding more smear. So the tools I've come back to and what I've really ended up chasing is really about time domain. And so 
Some of my gear has transformers. A lot of it's discrete, but a bunch of it has ICs and most of it is custom. And it's all really come back to time domain stuff. Or if I'm going to smear the time domain, is it doing it in a lovely way? Like I have an Altec 15, whatever, the green mixer over oh, yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. And if and if I like crank up the bass on that, or if you're using a Neve pre and you like crank the treble, it's totally smearing the time, but it's doing it beautifully. So you're saying it's not, it's not necessarily a bad thing if the time is getting smeared as long as it's happening in a harmonious way. Right. And that's why people like freak out for all these old EQs like Poltex and Neves and whatnot is that it does it really well. I have a gripe to pick with a lot of the sort of new, cheaper manufacturers of equipment now, though, because they're saying that it's the same thing because they like copy the circuit, but nobody's paying attention to this time domain stuff. It's it's just fascinating because like sometimes I'll get things to master and it's like there's this harsh stuff and it's not because there's too much mid-range or too much treble. It's because the treble's not in time or mm. the mid-range isn't in time. So let me ask this, because this is this is not something I have remotely considered, and now now you've turned me on to it. So let's say we're talking about a snare drum, and, and audience, I know I'm kind of taking a left turn of where I normally go with, with interviews, but I'm genuinely curious here. So would the snare drum's harmonics not be directly affected by the acoustic space? And so to affect the timing of those harmonics, the space would have to be altered to produce the desired result, yes? A snare drum actually is a tricky example to talk about because of how fast the transient is. Could we talk about this with a voice? Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. You ever hear a vocal that's recorded on a cheap condenser? So you hear you hear a vocal that's recorded on a $100 condenser and, and you get it to mix, and maybe there's like a sibilance issue because the capsule had this funny spike in it, right? Right. Maybe they did all this compensation circuitry to flatten it like the manufacturer did. Right. And I don't mean character spiky. I mean like sibilant problem spiky. And so then they did all the circuitry. And so now you have a big boost and a big cut. So already you're coming in with this extra long mid-range. So now the sibilance is actually longer than it was. We're not even talking about amplitude yet. It's just taking up more time. Then, you know, we DS it and we cue it. And now we're smearing it more. And I almost think of it like an image going out of focus. And so we end up chasing these harshness problems that cannot actually be resolved. And there's some amazing tools for helping them and for sort of glossing them over. Mm -hmm. But it always ends up being putting a Band-Aid on a Band-Aid on a Band-Aid. And it's not like I'm using like Earthworks or DPAs all the time. I'm using very character-filled things, but it's choosing the character and being aware of what these things do because I think there's so much emphasis put on specs and what people perceive to be hi-fi, which is typically hyped upper frequency content, mm -hmm. that we're forgetting about the beauty of something like Kind of Blue playing out of a full range speaker. And it's like, this doesn't have 16K, it doesn't have 20 hertz, and I don't care because it feels like there's a trumpet in front of me. Why does it feel like there's a trumpet in front of me? Because there's very little phase distortion. Interesting. And great choice of record. We hear that record I think my kids are so sick of it because we play it so much. Uh, it's I know it's cliche of me, but it's one of my all-time favorites. It is. It's a beautiful record. It's it's fantastic. Let's talk about, and I'm going to just drive this into like a more engineering side of things. Sure. Uh, than rather uh, your musical explorations, which we'll get to. Sure. So in terms of whether it's recording or mixing or mastering, where do you feel most at home if you had to choose? I can connect with almost any music when I'm mastering it. Mm. 
and slightly less as I inch back towards producing, which would be like mastering, mixing, recording, producing. It's actually very hard for me to be a recording engineer without being a producer in the room. Unless somebody's a really good producer and really taking that role, which actually I think is an interesting thing these days is there's so much blurred lines between engineer and producer. And I think it's fine for everybody to be all of it, but I think the sort of big picture perspective that having a producer or somebody being allowed to do that role can provide is really, really important. And some people who are completely out of their minds, like myself, will go ahead and be all of it, but that's a special kind of whatever. But yeah, I think mastering, I can connect with the most things, mixing a little less, recording and producing a little less. I need to be able to connect with what I'm working on, though. It's really important for me. It's like, I always say, it's like, I'm not in this job for the money. I'm in this job or in this field because of all the other things I was talking about before. So all of them, but it really depends on the project. So mastering kind of takes precedence for you over the other tasks, or you find it easier to connect with the music when you're mastering? I find it easier to connect with more music when I'm mastering. Mm. When I connect with something, it's not about effort. In the role of mastering engineer, I can connect with almost anyone. It's like I put on that shape and I can connect with almost anyone. Mixing, I have to really feel the music a little more. And then to have the patience and compassion that's really needed to be a really good recording engineer or producer, I have to like really connect with the artists and the music. I'm so with you. Like, <laughs> and it's funny, do you find as you get older when you're in the studio with people, it's just like, the patience runs a little thinner because especially if you're not connecting with them in the way that you want to, like if you're just a hired gun. I can't do it. I've never been able to do it though. I mean, see my history of I'm almost a high school dropout and I'm a two times college dropout and I got quit or I fired myself from jobs along the way. And that's not because I don't get along with people. It's that I really need to be working in environments and with people in contexts that feel aligned with my spirit. I don't know how else to put it. It's just, it's really important to me. Totally fair. Yeah. So, I mean, like being in the room with amazing musicians playing a beautiful song, there's nothing more special. Oh my God, that's incredible. There's, it's a gift to be there. And it's awesome for people to like make a demo and do 80 takes of it if that's what they need to do to express themselves. I'm so glad that there's places to do that, but I'm not the person for that. It was actually, that was a really hard thing for me career-wise to sort of wrap my head around because I was holding myself to some ideal where I should be able to do that. Why can't I do that? You know, do I think I'm so much better than X, Y, or Z? And the answer was no, it's not about that. It's actually me recognizing my own strengths and limitations in a way that supports everyone. Because if I'm in a session and resentful about being there, I'm actually doing a disservice to the artists I'm working with. And so by choosing to not do that, I'm actually helping everyone. You know, I think that's a really, really important point you made there. And Jessica Thompson, who's who's been on this show, has talked about it's not really great for people to dabble because when you dabble, you don't, you don't embrace the role as much. And so by you making that conscious decision to say, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to be involved in this because it's a disservice to us both. Mm-hmm. I think that that's, that's important for people to realize. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as Check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. 
And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. I want to just note for whoever whoever may hear this, taking that step back, which at times meant figuring out other things to do for money, was one of the scariest things I've ever done. Because mm-hmm. everyone starts like getting a little traction and building their career. And they're like, I just have to take whatever project walks through my door. And that's not good for you. That's not good for me. That's not good for the clients. That's not good for anyone. And I think it's so fascinating the sort of culture of like, gotta hustle, gotta hustle, gotta get to it, gotta get to it, has really infiltrated music so deeply, has infiltrated art so deeply. It's mm-hmm. like, I think one of the most beautiful things about music is what an inefficient art form it is. It's so beautifully human in that, right? Everything has to be done in real time. Even something like color correcting video, you can scan through your color corrections, but music, if you want to know what something sounds like, you have to play it back. And you can't even just play back the thing you want to know because you need the context, which also exists in time. So as an art form, it's incredibly inefficient. And I think that's one of the most precious things about it genuinely near and dear to my heart is the fact that the very act of engaging in it forces us to slow down. The nature of mastering really, from my perspective, dictates that one, take your time, especially when, you know, when you're QCing something that you're printing, is that one of the reasons that appeals to you? Is the attention to detail? That's interesting. Hmm. I've often thought that one of the things that kind of appeals to me about mastering the most is that my brain doesn't work linearly Mm -hmm. and mastering sort of provides a linear container. But when I'm mastering, I'm actually usually jumping around between the whole record because I'm working at least a hybrid setup where it's like half analog. Things do need to be printed, but like at some point in the record, I'm always jumping around between things and it is very detail oriented. But I think it's actually, it's actually the opposite. It's that mastering is very quick paced for me. Like occasionally I'll get stumped. I mean, one of the hardest things, right, is when you get a really good mix and you're like, okay, I can't mess this up. You know, it's (laughs) like, it's really easy to take something that sounds pretty good and make it sound really good. It's much more difficult to take something that sounds excellent and make it sound exceptional. Yeah. But mastering is pretty quick paced for me. And I think that really helps me because I can have a really hard time with repetition. 
and staying present to repetition. And that's why for tracking, I have to really, really connect with the artists and the music because I think it's so important whatever part of this process we're involved in, you have to care. Otherwise, why are you in it? Yeah. Yeah, you have to be a, an active participant. Yeah. Once again, I, I'm in great agreement with you there. Let's talk a little audio business. As far as how you get clients, what works for you? I have no idea. But if you'd like me to master your record, I'm sure there will be things <laughs> No, it's, it's word of mouth. It's always word of mouth. I wish there were something else I could say about this because occasionally I'll, I'll get someone younger than myself being like, well, how do you do it? How do you get there? And I'm like, you just do it and you keep doing it and you do it because you have to not like it was funny actually it was peter who said to me at, at school one day he goes wait you mean to tell me both of your parents were engineers and nobody talked you out of this <laughs> i remember being advised in school not to open a studio yeah everyone's like don't do that and i mean my, my studio that i'm sitting in is in my apartment i love it and then when i need a big room i go to a big room but i honestly don't know I'm at a funny place in my own career right now. It's also funny. It's actually really exciting to me, but where I'm feeling the need to expand my work outside of music because the working with people is so important to me. I'm, I'm starting to find myself wanting to expand to have more contexts to work directly with people, not instead of working in music, but just really finding where I can be of service and making that happen. So sometimes that'll be music and sometimes it won't be, but I don't know with the business. I really don't. I never have. I feel like I'm a soul floating through the universe, following breadcrumbs, playing with form. And music's just always been such a magical thing to me, such a transcendent practice that that definitely won't go away. But I've seen so many people get such big success because somebody just reposts something. And I've seen people work their whole lives to work up what they think is a ladder to get nowhere and be miserable. And that's what just comes back to me with this is like, it's like you just, if you love it and you need to do it, then do it and the money will follow because the money is just an energy exchange. So there's no conscious plan. You're just actually just doing what you do best and try to do it the best you can. And that tends to attract people to say, hey, would you do this for me? That's right. I guess it was about 2015. My dad passed in 2014 and 2015, I moved up to Massachusetts with my at the time partner from New York and we rented a house and set up a studio in it and we were like, we're going to do this. And we talked to like a business consultant and tried to come up with a business plan and stuff. And as it turns out, that's really great if you're trying to sell a stapler or like a new pair of scissors. But I don't know, like I've thought about taking out ads and stuff, but it feels icky to me. It feels like I wouldn't really want to see a therapist that took out an ad either. <laughs> You know, oh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's like, yeah. got problems? Come on over. Right, exactly. And so I think actually with mastering, a lot of connections I've made have been through my friend Heba Kadri posting about me a couple times on her Instagram story. You know, thanks, Heba. But it's always just been breadcrumbs and word of mouth. My website says always under construction. And I saw that. I might make more of a website at some point, but it's true. I am becoming. I don't know what I'm becoming. I'll know when I get there, but I'm not sure I ever get there. I am the emergence. And so it, every time I've tried to pin it down, every time I've gone and talked with a business consultant, no, like, I don't know what to do with me. They don't know what to do with me. Nobody knows what to do with it. So I'm just like, well, I guess I'm just going to keep doing it. And I've been really, really blessed with circumstances in my life that have allowed the hours and the work I've put in to amount to something. What's your evaluation of surviving 
in this business? How do you feel like you make it work? Do you have any other gigs that you do beyond musical audio-based gigs? Is there like any day gig that helps to bring in more money? No, there's there's no day job right now. At times I've done like AV tech work and AV live sound stuff in the past. I can't do it anymore. I've just, they don't want me in those rooms. I don't want to be in those rooms. It's all good. I think that we're at a profound time in human history where we're seeing consciousness changing in a really incredible way. And so I think a lot of these conversations are going to change as well over time. In the meantime, I'm honestly not really sure. It's really sketchy at points. You know, it's really sketchy at points. Oh, you mean financially sketchy? Yeah, like precarious to just keep it running. I mentioned that I design and build equipment. Occasionally I'll do tech projects for people. I do a bunch of stuff with Paul Smith. Is that Paul Reed Smith? Yeah. PRS just put out some pedals, a compressor, a flanger, and a distortion. I worked on all three, but the compressor is my design. Oh, wow. And Paul and I have been building microphones and studio gear and whatnot. And so I'll do tech stuff on the side a little bit. I mean, I mentioned in passing earlier, I'm autistic. It can be really, really, really hard to get my, my brain to like do things if it's not what is in alignment with me. And it's so fascinating to me to consider how to make this sustainable because I think it's so much bigger than anything any one of us can do. I think that my advice on how to make being in music and audio sustainable is shift culture. From the ground level up. Yeah, and not in a tear it down sort of way. I mean, I mentioned being in the punk scene and that was very much like, burn it down, man. I don't think that needs to be the case anymore. It's just like, look for those opportunities to do something that feels better and do that. And the more we do that together, the more it creates those opportunities to do that. Ideally, to me, I see things changing because we render the things that hurt us obsolete, not because we have to fight them, but because we invent something that serves us better. So it's like connect with people, build community around things and see what happens. Make your intention to feel good and to do this with joy. I think the more we can let go of the idea that it has to be a struggle, the more we can let go of the idea that it has to be a struggle. Hmm. But like, I don't have a specific piece of advice of like, if you're trying to make it an audio right now, (laughs) I'm like, I wish I had something better about that. But I couldn't work a desk job. And this is something that I've counted my lucky stars for years that I've been able to set up what I've been able to set up. Mm -hmm. Because if you put me in an office or you put me in a grocery store, I'd just have a meltdown. So I've had to make it work freelance because that's how I've been able to eat and keep a roof over my head. And I've been so blessed to be able to do that within the context of something that's so near and dear to my heart. Yeah. That I can find purpose in. Let me ask you this, because a lot of us the obsession of gear. And I know you you might have a little bit different perspective on this because you have talents that that some of us don't in terms of how gear should operate and the inner workings of, of gear. But do you obsess at all about gear? Do you find yourself getting in trouble like buying stuff that you can't afford, et cetera, kind of a thing? Not anymore. Thank God I feel like I've arrived. Like, I really want a big analog mastering EQ one day. I have some little analog mastering EQs and various, various custom things, but the big dreams, like I want a Sontech, you know, everyone wants the big Sontech. I want a 432. Do I need a 432 to master records? Absolutely not. Will any of my clients hear one of my records and go, you know, this is pretty good, but if she used a 432, this would be great. (laughs) No, that's never going to happen. They're going to listen and go, wow, yeah, I feel the emotions of the song. And that's what counts. And so I used to really obsess about gear a lot. At this point, I don't though, but I also understand why people would because I did. Yeah, I mean, it's bitten me in the ass 
in the past, plenty of times, just buying stuff that I shouldn't have been buying. So I've learned my lesson, but yeah, it's it's like. Well, but uh, if you needed the gear, then you should have bought it, and it's all good. Yeah, that's I true. Mean, I'm I'm paying off a profit six right now because I needed a profit six for my health. <laughs> that's right. When you decide, okay, I need this kind of piece of gear. Do you often go to? I'll just make it. I'll just build it myself. Well, that's how I got into building stuff because in 2015 I needed mic pre's and. I had $2,000 and needed like eight of them and mm -hmm. they had to be really good and that wasn't happening. Well, no, I needed 16 of them, shall we say, and $2,000 will get you an ISA 828, which I did, the, fo the eight channel focus right thing. And then I needed some more that were like, whatever the next tier is from that. And so I learned to build things because I needed to. I've built various things my whole life at points. When I was little, it was like imaginary things and Legos. And then when I was a teenager, it was guitars and then cars and bicycles. And then at some point it became audio equipment. So sometimes I'll build it first. Really what it comes down to is, does the thing I want exist? Mm. Which for the most part, it doesn't. <sighs> I'm a little jaded with the gear thing. Yeah. I'm used to things that I hope that everyone gets the opportunity to get used to certain things. I, I guess that's the best way I could put it. I'm thinking about the ways in which, like, I have an M49 on my desk right now that I'm modding for somebody because the microphones we've been building to us sound better than the M49 does. So a lot of it isn't out there. And it's not that, say, an M49 isn't a great mic, but you don't even need an M49, right? You need a mic that the amplifier circuit has good time domain stuff in it and it has a really nice sounding capsule on it. And mm. that doesn't have to cost $20,000. The mics we're building don't cost $20,000. And so it's really like, huh, well, does it exist? And if so, can I afford it? And if I can't afford it, do I want it badly enough to put the effort in to make it? Because I love designing things, but like I built my summing mixer and by the time you've soldered half of the inputs and outputs, it's not fun anymore. It's really cool to draw the pictures and make the panel in like in the CAD program. <laughs> yeah. But by the time you're soldering every last leg of every, it's 16 by two with direct outs. And so that's hundreds and hundreds of connections to make that happen. And so it's like, oh, this is a really cool idea until you're halfway through that. And you're like, I don't ever want to touch a soldering iron again. Right, you lose that inspiration. Exactly. And to me, it's I see gear as paintbrushes or camera lenses. It's tools for making art. So a microphone, a mic pre, an EQ, a mixer, it's all for making art. They're instruments. So if I need to find inspiration in it. And so it's so important to me to when I look at that to be like, well, how do I retain the inspiration? Because sometimes, too, I find that just wanting the gear is more fun than having it. I have gone through that, too. You know, it's weird. Like sometimes you want it, you buy it, it shows up. You're like, great, I've got it. Uh, now what? Yeah. It's just, and the excitement kind of leaves the body. Yeah. And that's why I say, you know, when you ask if I like have gear lust, I'm really blessed to have what I want and want what I have. So it doesn't really hit me the same way it used to. As an alternative, do you ever think, well, okay, I'll buy like the cheaper thing and I'll mod it? No. <laughs> Short answer. I thought about it. No. I thought about it for a second. Well, I've done it with microphones, but by the time you take an amplifier and a capsule out of a condenser microphone, you're really just using the metalwork. Yeah. And so at that point, you can just buy bike bodies now. And so it all becomes about which direction you're going to hit it from. My dad was really into having one of everything. It was actually something that was sort of a contentious point between us because he'd have one of everything and it would all be like kind of okay quality, but he'd do amazing things with it. He was an incredible engineer. 
But I no, I'd rather instead of having six of whatever, I'll take one and just have it be really good. Yeah. So I'll be I'll be a little bit of a gear nerd for a second. So my monitors are ATC SCM fifty ASLs. Okay. I know I sent you a picture before and there were NS10s in it. The NS10s don't get turned on. They are where my little statue of Kali and my little bird friend that my mom brought me back from a trip many years ago sit. I work on ATCs and I work on Apple earbuds. I drive the Apple earbuds with the sound device's headphone amp, which is completely over the top, but I still maintain that Apple earbuds are the best low-end reference you can have for under five digits. Nobody likes it when I say that. They really want to tell me about whatever headphones they just bought. And I'm like, cool, now go to B&H and spend 20 bucks and get yourself a pair of Apple earbuds. Why? Because they're a really good reference. Not because it's what everyone listens on, but because they're a really good reference. And it's funny because if I couldn't have the ATCs, like when I go to other studios, I don't take my ATCs. I take my Apple earbuds. And, And we're talking about wired earbuds. Yeah, you can get them with an eighth inch or 3.5 millimeter, whatever we're calling that, for like 20 bucks from B&H. And I had Sennheiser HD600s. I thought I needed HD600s. Turns out the Apple earbuds, way better low-end reference. And those are interesting too, because they actually reveal some of the things that we typically have to like go into a car or something to reveal, uh-huh. because you are the cabinet. So you are the resonant space. So you can hear resonances that you wouldn't hear otherwise. But I bring this up, though, to say that everyone's like, what's a good mic I can get for $150? And it's like, go buy an SM57 or an SM58. And everyone's like, no, but I want a condenser. And I'm like, don't buy a condenser mic for $100. <laughs> go buy an SM57 or an SM58 because it will actually do the thing. It's Paul who sort of got it in my head. It's like, these are tools to do a job. These are instruments for creating a piece of art. So if the instrument is working, it's a good instrument. Back to the, the earbud thing. So my experience is, is obviously the further you drive them closer to the air canal, you know, the, the more low end starts to take shape and the further you pull them out, let them rest sure. a little outside. Where do you find the sweet spot? I mean, is it, do you, do you just kind of pop them in and, or do you shove them deep into your air canal? Oh, I've never, I've never thought about that. I just kind of pop them in. That's starting to get into the mechanics of, well, how far into the over-ear headphone does your ear sit? I never really think about it. I think it's one of those things that you just sort of get in a rhythm with. It's like I've listened to music on them for years. And at some point I was like, what am I doing? I'm taking all of my mixes and my masters and putting them on my phone to check these on the earbuds. Why don't I just have one of these in the studio? And like I said, at this point, it's the ATCs in those. And I could mix and master just in them, but I I don't really like being in headphones. So essentially put them in to the point where you can perceive the low end and make decisions off of it. Yeah, and remember that headphones are never going to move your body like big speakers do. Little speakers won't either. And it's actually, when I master records for people, I often hear their monitors. Like I've mastered enough records in my room that when I hear people's records, I can like hear the inverse of other people's monitoring. And one of the biggest things I hear is when people work on small speakers or headphones, and I used to do this, I could point you at records of mine that have way too much 50 on them because I was working on headphones and NS10s. And you end up pushing the low end because you want to feel the music. And they just can't move enough air to make you feel the music. Yeah, They just can't do it. This is why we have mains. And you don't need mains. And it's fun to turn little speakers up. The thing I'm trying to convey from this is the thing that's actually made my mixes and masters better is self-control and understanding the limits of my monitoring environment. So when I say I think Apple earbuds are a great low-end reference, I don't mean put them in your ears and turn them up till you feel the bass, <laughs> right? You will blow your hearing right out. 
the mid-range will destroy your hearing before you feel the bass, but you can hear the bass. Okay. And so you have to learn how to listen. And if you're willing to learn how to listen, they're very accurate. They might not be as exciting as something else, but they're very accurate. Hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about these mics that you're making with Paul Smith? And is that sure. is that a public thing? Are they available? We haven't started a mic company. I mean, I build mics for people occasionally. Like if someone hits me up and is like, Eddie, can you build me a mic? The answer is usually yes. But we thought about starting a mic company and just at some point we're like, there's so much stuff on the market right now that the amount of whatever it would take to be like, no, we're not like the other girls would just be kind of like over the top, you know? Yeah. Um, but this is actually going back a long time now. Wow. Almost 15 years. Wow. I just, mics became a special interest of mine and I started designing circuits. I started getting Apex 460s and modding them type deal. Yeah. And at some point there wasn't anything of those left, like not even remotely. And so at this point I have an amplifier circuit, like a head amp circuit for a condenser mic. It's based on a, a, it's like a single triode, like many of them are with a transformer and it's inspired by the M49C and the Telefunken 251, mm -hmm. but it's not a clone of either of them. It's like in the ways that they're all inspired by each other. It's kind of like the M49C and the 251 are kind of the same mic-ish in the way that a C12 and a 47 and a 49B are kind of the same mic, and it has to do with how the tubes are biased. And so just over the last 10 years or so, I've developed this mic circuit that basically you can put any capsule on and it sounds awesome. And so both of us are, are real big fans of M7 capsules. That's like what we're in the early 47s and 49s. We've tried a bunch of different ones and there's some really great stuff out of there. Our, our pal Eric Heiserman makes some great capsules. Our, uh, my pal Danny Bouchard in Canada makes some great capsules. We've played with vintage Neumann capsules. We've played with Tiersch capsules. We've tried them all. Paul actually machined the capsules I have in the mic right now. And then we have them diaphragmed by a man named Peter Drafel in Germany, who's like a sort of tube mic guru and just does the most beautiful diaphragms. Because it's been so wild to learn that the diaphragms really, it's like tuning a drum. Yeah. And so there's really an art to it. There is no just it's good or bad. And it's crazy because capsules themselves, a couple thousandths of an inch in the machining, or really one thousandth of an inch in the machining will change the, the tone of the capsule entirely. Hmm. Paul has some beautiful mics, but he's been really, I mean, he, he makes things too, you know? And so it, at some point we just both sort of got down this rabbit hole and it was just like, well, how good can it get? And the answer is very good. And it's been really interesting because just... I mean, the capsules, I, I can't even speak to the technical parts of the capsules. It's an art. And when I say I can't speak to it, it's not that I'm withholding anything. It's that I haven't actually made capsules. I know good when I hear it, and I've had the privilege of hearing some really incredible stuff. Mm -hmm. But there's still part of me that looks at people making capsules like, oh my God, how do you do that? Yeah. And the circuit's really simple. It's just, again, it's the less crap in the path thing. How few parts can I have between the capsule and my ear, essentially, off the other end of the speaker? So the mics I've been building, you get two patterns. You get cardioid and omni because it's one diaphragm or both diaphragms because in only having two patterns, there's all of these pieces of circuitry that the signal no longer has to pass through. And I've gone with a tube in the mic at this point, honestly, because it's the cleanest not because it's warm and fuzzy and adds harmonics, but because a triode and a transformer when implemented right is the most beautiful, like natural musical sounding thing you can do. Huh. So 
the mics are made and and it's kind of like making art. It's not necessarily we're opening up an art store here. They're made, they're tested. It's essentially like an R&D project, would you say? Isn't life? Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, so just changing topics, as far as your choice of location of where to operate from, do you feel like you could pretty much operate from most places? I feel like I could operate from anywhere. There is a, a wonderful music scene here in Western Massachusetts, but I work with people around the world. I think that at this point, if you really go to any one place and really do the thing, it'll become a small fishbowl at some point because like our society is global now. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, I feel like I could work from anywhere. This feels like home for a number of reasons. I like being a person here. Yeah. And you feel like you have the resources musically, recording wise to do what you need to do. Do you get most of your clients just worldwide, mastering clients in particular? In the last two weeks, I've worked on a record for somebody based out of LA, a record for somebody based out of this area, and a record for somebody based out of Shanghai. Okay. The internet makes word of mouth in principle a little more broad than it used to be. Yeah. But you spent some time in New York, so do you think that that helps play into some of that word of mouth? Maybe. I don't know. I don't think necessarily beyond true connections I've made. I guess there is a certain mystique to like New York mastering engineer, mm-hmm. but but I don't really play it. Yeah. Well, for the audience, I'll put, and I know your website, as it says, it's like you know, always <laughs> under construction. I will put a link in the show notes to the website. Sure. And any other tidbits of links that you deem relevant will add to there. So my Instagram's really more kind of my website. Okay. We'll, we'll definitely put the Instagram link in there. Annie, thank you so much for making time for me. I appreciate your, your quick response to my email and helping me uh, get to show together quickly for, for this next week. Thank you for having me, Matt. Yeah, true pleasure. At some point, we'll meet in person and we'll, we'll talk more shop, I'm sure. Absolutely. So that's it. Take care. You too. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Annie Casella here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I want to remind you to leave a five-star review over at your podcast aggregator and tell a friend, tell everybody who you think might be interested in listening to all the great interviews we got going on over here. Would love to have them. But that's all for me today. I want to thank my crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Chuck Smith with that badass voice at the beginning of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And always feel free to email matt at workingclassaudio.com. Until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, 
including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. 